Hi everyone, it's Roger from There Be Giants. Yes, I know you don't usually hear me on these podcasts. It's uh, usually another member of my team, but uh, uh, lucky you, you've got uh, an exception today. Uh, And I'm very, very excited actually to be uh, welcoming the guest that we have today, uh, Neil Doshi. Uh, Neil uh, joins us all the way from New York. Hi there, Neil. Hey, Roger, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, and yourself? I'm doing really well. Excellent, excellent. Uh, So I came across some of Neil's work uh, that he has done with his colleague Lindsay uh, via HBR, actually, via some of the papers that they've written there. And personally, myself, I was very keen to speak to Neil because uh, of the way that he and Lindsay have, uh, in in my mind, redefined how performance is uh, is is looked at and approached and and therefore encouraged and motivated uh, in in modern organisations. So, understanding that OKRs are very much part or can play a, a very important role in that. That's why I'm really keen to, uh, to 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 have this conversation with you today, Neil. But if I wonder if you could just start though by just kind of explaining a little bit about uh, what you do and. Uh, and uh, the, the work you've been involved in? Yeah, absolutely, Roger. Well, by, by means of introduction for all of the listeners out there, my name is Neil Doshi. I'm one of the co-authors of a worldwide bestseller called Prime to Perform. It's a book about the science of motivation and performance at scale. I'm also one of the founders of Vega Factor. I think for the sake of this conversation, what will probably be most interesting to you, Roger, is About 30 years ago, I started my career as a software engineer, uh, interestingly enough. And think about 30 years ago, this is the mid-90s, it was the rise of the internet. And I went to work at one of the world's largest financial institutions. And I was excited about this. I was excited to work there because I thought that bringing, bringing my skills around technology and the internet to the banking industry around the world could be great fun and a lot of impact. But about... Three months into my job, all I can tell you is how much I hated working there. <laughs> and the funny thing is, I couldn't tell you why. When I'd, say, when I'd say this to my friends, they'd say, oh, you must have bad bosses. No, not at all. My bosses mm. were the nicest people on the planet. Yeah. They were like second parents. I mean, genuinely decent human beings. And they'd say, well, then you must have been under-resourced. Nope. We had more money to play with as engineers than you could possibly imagine. I mean, it was pretty mm. much a blank check. Mm-hmm. So why, why was I so unhappy? And, and in reality, why were so many of the engineers so happy? It wasn't just me. Now, I remember at first I thought, well, maybe it's just me. Now, here I am, I'm 21 years old. Maybe I'm just not cut out for work. <laughs> and you can imagine what a depressing thought that, that is. Yeah. Like you've got 40 years of work ahead of you. Yeah, exactly. Your whole career ahead. <clears throat> and you're thinking to yourself, maybe you're just not cut out for work. And I remember... Towards the end of my time there, I was really phoning it in. I just wasn't doing good work at all. Um, I was not even putting in hours. And I quit to start a company. And I went from working maybe an honest three hours a day to working seven days a week, 14 hours a day, and loving Mm. every minute of it. Mm. Loving it. And I, I realized it couldn't have been me. Because I didn't change. There wasn't enough time for me to change. It was one day to the next. So if I didn't change, what was it? And at that point, having having started this company, I tried to build a high-performing environment for my people. And the best I can do was mediocre. It was just okay. Mm -hmm. Now, think about it this way. As an engineer, um, I tried to build something. I tried to build a high-performing environment. Yeah. And I completely failed. And to, at that point, I still couldn't explain the phenomenon I felt. So I made it my life's work to understand the science behind it. If you're an engineer and you tried to build a machine and it doesn't perform to the level that you expect, well, all that really says is that you don't fully understand or grasp the science underlying this machine. What I realized in the early moments of this journey is there was no real science of performance. Mm. There were bits and pieces scattered but there was no integrated, thoughtful, deductive, quantifiable, predictive science of performance. And so I spent the next 20 years just chipping away at this problem, chipping away at this problem, 
And about seven, eight years ago, we've, we cracked the code. Now, to be clear, we did leverage a lot of research from a lot of other people. So we, sure. we built on the back of giants. But it was about seven years ago where we were able to pull it all together to a singular comprehensive framework that we can make prediction with. Once you can make prediction, you can actually run experiments. You can actually predictably create high-performing environments. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that we decided that we should col- we should collect all this and write Prime to perform. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, all we really do now is work with organizations and help them set up high-performing environments. Gotcha, gotcha. If I, if I could just go back a couple of um, a couple of minutes to when you said that you. Uh, you know, you you were comparing the number of hours which you felt you were working when you were in the software company versus what you worked when, you know, you'd started up your business and it was considerably more. It wasn't even close. I mean, it was, <laughs> I was working every waking hour. Yeah. I mean, if I wasn't sleeping, showering, eating, I was working. Okay. And I loved it. Loved and, it. And, and you know what, as, <clears throat> as someone who, who has, who, who has gone from working in a corporate environment to, starting their own business i a lot of that resonates with me but i'm just curious you were you were clearly motivated to do that and as you said you yourself hadn't changed you were still the same you so what would you put that where where was that drive where was that where was that motivation coming from when you started up by yourself to to commit so much more energy than you were doing previously you know it's a great question roger just even even starting at the foundation of that question, it's not hard to conclude that motivation drives performance. Mm-hmm. Like you say those words, and I think most people would nod their heads, of course, that must be true. Motivation drives performance. Mm-hmm. Now, already it's worth pausing because rarely do organizations actually manage motivation. Mm-hmm. Just think about that for a second. I mean, that's a fascinating thought. It is. Motivation drives performance. We all know this. We all know this to be true. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that this is a true statement. Yet, how many organizations do you see actually manage motivation? Like next to none. So that's that's fascinating by itself. But but you're right. Like at the core of this is motivation drives performance. But that motivation wasn't coming from me because I didn't really change. It was the same, I was the same me one day before to one day after. What what our research determined is a substantial amount of a person's motivation comes from the context that they're in. Mm. Now, I say this, it's so funny. You do all this research and then you find these conclusions and you think about these conclusions and you realize, my God, those are obvious. <laughs> the, the, the funny thing about this one is, just think about it. Like, Think about who here hasn't had an experience where you're working in a company um, and in one moment you're working on a project or a deliverable and you're feeling pretty demotivated. And then the next moment, you're working on a different project or a different team, a different deliverable, and you're feeling super motivated. Mm. Who mm. here hasn't felt that? Mm. You know, I'll often ask audiences this when we'll share our research or, or drive training programs, and almost everyone says, I've experienced that. Mm. And what I point out to them is, you haven't changed. You're the same you. Your company writ large, like the larger body of your company, who your CEO is, the larger systems of your company, those haven't changed in those two moments your local context changed. Yeah. And that local context had that profound an impact on you. And so what our research pointed out is a couple of important things. One, a substantial amount of what drives a person's motivation comes from the local context. But to really understand that, you have to unpack what motivation means for a moment. Now, to help to help understand what motivation is and really ultimately to the goal of managing it at the level of your teams and companies. Mm. You have to realize that motivation isn't a singular construct, that at the root of motivation is the word motive. And what does motive mean? Motive is your reason for doing something. So you think about, you watch Law and Order and they're wondering what this criminal's motive is. What they're asking, the question they're actually asking when they're saying, well, what's Roger's motive? Mm. They're asking, why did he do this? Mm. Now, fundamentally, there are six human motives. The first motive is play. You do something simply because you enjoy doing it. Mm. So if you have a hobby or, for example, even podcasts like this, Roger, I imagine that um, I imagine that for you, some of this is a great deal of fun. Like you just enjoy doing it. It is. It is. You're absolutely right. The conversations, the dialogues, yeah. Yeah. the kind of 
the chatting back and forth, bouncing ideas off each other. I'm sure, I'm sure that's a great deal of fun for you. Yeah, it is. That's play. A play exists at work a lot, by the way. Um, it's those moments where you are learning, you're experiencing curiosity, novelty. Um, you're, you're trying something new. Mm. The novelty and play are very tightly coupled concepts. Now, to be crystal clear, play, I'm not saying that you should be giving your colleagues ping pong tables <laughs> because that's not their job. Play has to come from the work itself, mm. not some distraction from the work. And this is something that I'm finding many companies are misunderstanding. And, and if I could just jump in there for a second, this is something which we, when, when we see, just bringing it back to our work with OKRs, when we see uh, well-written, well-articulated uh, key results, particularly ones that are written as outcomes, where they don't define how something should be done, and they are uh, written in such a way so as to encourage experimentation. This is where we find that, you know, teams can start to have a play, have a, have a go at maybe doing, solving a problem slightly differently to how they might have done it before. But what what can often work against that in my, in my experience is um, how failure has been dealt with within the culture of the organization up to that point. Because when you play, you don't always succeed because you learn some of the stuff might not always work. So you adapt it next time and, you know, all that, 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 that sort of trial and error approach. But if people have been, um, uh, if people have been berated, people have, have, have been penalized for failure in the past, then this can actually really, really, make any encouragement to play quite difficult. Uh, have you found that at all? Well, you know, Roger, I think what you're actually doing is you're unpacking the other motives. I think all right. <laughs> in, in the course of what you're saying, you're actually ticking through other, other motives. Gotcha. Um, so let me actually unpack those motives. I think it'll help create a good framework to really surgically understand this concept of failure that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if play is the first motive, essentially it's all about the work itself. Um, it's not about anything other than that. Like you just enjoy doing the work. Um, imagine, imagine those hobbies that you have where you just do it on your own. It doesn't even produce an outcome, but you still love doing it. Hmm. That's the play motive. The, the, my one last comment on the play motive, just because play is so powerful and organizations so deeply neglected. I, I run into a lot of executives who are like, Neil, play sounds super frivolous. And that's not what I mean. I'm not, I'm not describing you're sitting there using a fidget spinner. I'm not describing ping pong tables. What I'm essentially saying is, do you think a person is going to perform better or worse if they find their work interesting or boring? Mm. That's, that's at the core of play. I mean, another way of putting it is so many people talk about workplace engagement. We've got to create engagement. We've got to create engagement. And what are the techniques they use? Ping pong tables, kombucha. <laughs> Now, it's as simple as this. If you want people to be engaged in their work, you have to make their work engaging. That's it. Full stop. That's the play motive. It's about making the work itself engaging. The second motive is called purpose. Now, if play is you do something because you enjoy the work itself, purpose is you do something because you value its immediate outcome. Yeah. Now, purpose is not big mission statements, interestingly enough, because most people in their work, especially in a company at scale, they don't, they don't perceive that the immediate outcome of their work has to do with the company's mission. Mm. The immediate outcome of their work has to do with fulfilling a customer's need in that moment. And the more they feel that that matters, that they matter, that their contribution matters, that's the purpose motive. You know, if, bro- if boredom is the opposite of play, the opposite of purpose is actually fungibility. You feel like a cog in the machine. Mm. You don't matter. Your contribution doesn't matter because you're just a cog. We all have a need to feel significant in some way or other, don't we? That's it. Mm. That's it. Now, the third motive is called potential. If purpose is you value the immediate outcome of work, your work, potential is you value some eventual outcome. Mm. Now, this is where mission might come in, or this could be where your longer-term career goals come in. But truth be told, of these three motives, which are called the direct motives, because they are directly related to the work, play is the work, purpose, first order outcome, potential, higher order, or eventual outcome. 
of the three direct motives, potential is an order of magnitude weaker than the other two. And think about it this way. We all know that if we have healthy behaviors, we'll have a longer life. Yet we are, it's so difficult to put down that pint of ice cream. <laughs> what you're seeing is exactly the weakness of the potential motive. It's just mm-hmm. not strong. Play, it's actually fun to eat ice cream. Really, really, really strong. In our research, play typically is somewhere between two to 10 times more powerful than purpose. Mm. And purpose itself is two to 10 times more powerful than potential. Organizations generally ignore play and purpose. They focus on potential, but this is the wrong strategy. The other way to think about it and connecting back to the dots of why does local context matter so much? Play comes from your work. It is, it is incredibly local to your context. And purpose is the immediate outcome of your work, which is also incredibly local to your context. There's very little, if, you, if I'm a company at scale, like let's say I'm a, uh, a couple of thousand person company or larger, there's very little a CEO can do for a frontline colleague to create plain mm. purpose because mm. it's that local. Now, your point on failure is really important because it has to do with the indirect motives. There are, there are motives that are no longer connected to the work itself. So for example, Roger, have you ever tried to get a loved one to do something using guilt? I feel ashamed to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well played. So, so guilt and shame are both examples of uh, emotional pressure, the first yeah. of the indirect motives. So emotional pressure is when an external force compels you to try mm-hmm. to do something um, by acting on your identity. So if I were to guilt my wife into doing early morning childcare, um, which we tend to do to each other quite often. Um, <laughs> but if I were to guilt my wife into doing early morning childcare, the activity is early morning childcare. My wife may or may not feel play purpose and potential for that activity at that moment in time. But my wife's identity, she cares about her children. She cares about her husband. Yeah. Her husband is the external force in this equation. Me trying to poke her identity to get her to do something is emotional pressure. So mm-hmm. guilt, shame, peer pressure are all forms of emotional pressure. At work, emotional pressure is when you start to feel like you have to make your boss happy. Yeah, or you, you're being, you don't want to let the team down or something yeah, exactly. like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're in, so, you, so subtle forms of guilt and shame at work. Mm. Um, the, your point around failure, one attribute of how failure manifests is via emotional pressure. And it's often very subtle. Like some, we'll get to economic pressure in a moment where it's not subtle. Emotional pressure is often really subtle. It's often these moments of you're feeling like you've disappointed your boss. And now your boss looks less favorably on you Mm. and you can feel it. Mm. And you can feel in these small moments that you're now being judged all the time. But if you're in an environment where you feel like you're being judged all the time, you can't perform at your best. There's a considerable amount of threat that's potentially wrapped up in that because one could, I think, um, in the in the in in the work that I've uh, I, I'm aware of that um, has has been done by the Neuro Leadership Institute around um, the the biology of the brain and how we react in th- in threat situations. Often in the workplace, if if we're perceiving that we are being judged in a way that um, could potentially harm our prospects, our career, yeah. then it, it starts to close down our uh, it, at a chemical level uh, our um, uh, uh, it, 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 the what what we need to be creative, what we need to be objective, what, what we need to to be to be adaptive. In, 100%. In, you know. Well, what you're talking about there is actually the next mode of economic pressure. Right. Um, economic pressure is about you're driven by a reward or a punishment. Yeah. Like threat now, like real threat is actually economic pressure. Far more powerful, by the way, than emotional pressure. Yeah. Now, the reason why I pause on emotional pressure is companies create a lot of it and don't even know it. So I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm working with one big tech company right now, helping to transform their operating model and culture. And they're laden with economic pressure in ways that are very, very subtle. So for example, it'd be something like, um, let's, say, let's say, Roger, you're, you're driving a lot of work, you're pushing really hard and you drop a ball. The moment you drop a ball, your leader, 
your leader's leader will actually come to you and say, hey, Roger, you know, you dropped this ball mm. and you should be really, really careful about that. Now, they do this, their intent obviously is positive. Like they're not trying to create emotional pressure. That's usually not the case. Like rarely are leaders trying to create emotional pressure. But what I pointed out to this organization is, is think about it this way. When I was, when I was traveling a lot, like pre-pandemic, I'd often travel like um, maybe three flights a week on average. Yeah. And I remember a mentor of mine once said to me, Neil, if you don't miss a flight every now and then, you're wasting too much time at the airport. <laughs> and that really resonated with me. Like if you don't miss a flight every now and then, you're spending hours and hours just hanging out at an airport. And the same is true with dropping balls at work. If you don't drop a ball every now and then, mm, you're, you're not trying hard enough. You're not trying hard enough. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so this organization that kept poking people every time they saw a ball dropped, what that caused predictably was everyone to try less hard. Like I'm not going to juggle eight balls. If there's a risk, one of them's going to drop. I'm going to juggle one because if the moment I'm going to get, I'm going to get dinged the moment I drop a ball, there's, why would I take the risk of juggling it? And do we see this in, in how uh, teams uh, and individuals approach the setting of their key results 100%. you know because in the, the you know the most widely publicized examples of you know okr applications google you know they are huge advocates of you aiming for a 0.7 uh instead of a, a, a instead of a one um because if you're constantly achieving a one then that means that you're kind of sandbagging you know, and you know falling you know a seven should be a solid result but not quite the full picture, not not quite the full one hundred percent, and that that's quite a cultural shift for organisations, for teams, it's particularly where uh, it, it, um, sales have obviously had a, had a huge influence on how uh, targets are being set and targets are being structured. Because if the message is, well, actually, you know, one hundred percent used to be, you know, what you <laughs> what you had to do. Now we're quite happy for you to do. 70% and it's like mm, hang on a second and we've seen that be quite unsettling in uh, in in if it's just brought straight in as a, as an immediate change it's something that we we advocate is 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 something that's phased in as as confidence grows around the application of OKRs and how they can how they 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 are when used correctly something that's genuinely different um, yeah you know just yeah. think about that through the lens of motives for a second. Because mm. we often see something, I'm sure you guys see too, which are OKRs weaponized. Yeah. A weaponized OKR is definitionally being used to create emotional and economic pressure. Yeah. And if you weaponize an OKR, what's going to end up happening is, well, one, you're going to get, you're, the negotiation phase is just going to be brutally long and painful. Sandbagging, um, deep sandbagging, constant complaining. And by the way, for a lot of good reasons, like one organization that, that we've helped with their with their culture and operating model. When we showed up, they were weaponizing their OKRs. That was the first state scenario. And when you talk to executives who had spent months negotiating those OKRs, like October, November would be completely filled. Like they're spending that much time mm. in trying to play this OKR game, mm. um, which is a massive waste of productivity. And the reason why it was, again, all good intents. They would say, well, you know, the career's the compensation of the people below me depend on me successfully sandbagging this OKR. And so I have to do it. And so you end up with that dynamic in organizations when you start to weaponize these things. Mm. Now, you don't have to weaponize them. Those are choices that you make. You can imagine exactly, Roger, what you're saying, that the construct of an OKR can itself create play, purpose, and potential. Yep. But for to do that, it has to, with play, it has to elicit curiosity. You have to think about, it has to guide you towards the problems you need to solve. Mm. And it should actually help you see that the path to solving them is going to be through collaboration and experimentation. Mm. That put differently, any goal, any change in performance that's not purely driven by momentum. And by the way, why are you wasting time on OKRs that are just driven by momentum? Mm. Any change in performance that is not, that is essentially a change of momentum requires change. Change requires 
some form of learning, experimentation, trying something new, see what works, see what doesn't work. And if you you make that the focus of what your fo- your people are are thinking through, well, you got play now. Um, if they are able to problem solve, if they are able to come up with their own ideas, try them out. Now you're actually creating play and purpose. Mm. Um, if your OKR feels like something that would matter to them personally, well, now you have potential also. Um, so the construct itself can easily go to highly motivating to highly demotivating. Mm. It's, it's really a matter of organizational leaders understanding the difference. Absolutely. And, and, and that, uh, uh, I, I think is, is, is very clearly illustrated by what, uh, how we recommend OKRs are used or certainly what we recommend the focused on. And that is activity that is, <coughs> excuse me, is, 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 is driving transformation, is driving change in some way, shape or form. They are, <clears throat> Uh, 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 wasted, I would say, uh, if they're used to only monitor existing ongoing performance. You know, that's what you have a good set of KPIs and and, and dashboards to to keep your, you know, your eye on how how much fuel is in the tank. But the the you know your OKRs are the sat nav. They're the ones that should be showing you the way forward, um, and ultimately articulating your destination, but allowing you to experiment on, on the route that you take towards that destination. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a very interesting body of research we talk about in Prime to perform around goals, where um, imagine if you had a sales team, for example, and imagine you, you divide them into three groups, three different types of goals. The first go- group, you didn't really give them a goal. You just said, guys, just do your best. The second group, you said... In your territory, we now have a 7% market share. We want you to triple that, 21% market share. That's your goal. The third group, you said, in the next three weeks, come up with five different ways to see if we can stimulate more growth. And none of those ways have to work. The only goal here is just try five different things and talk about them afterwards. Essentially, an experimentation goal. Now, when run in practice, these three scenarios, do your best versus a, an actual hard target, like seven to 21% versus a experiment goal. In the next three weeks, come up with five different ways of trying to stimulate growth. None of them have to work. All we need is the learnings. The, the third stimulates a higher degree of performance, actually grows faster with a higher degree of motivation and a sustainable level. Mm. But rarely do organizations think about actually focusing on what people need to do to drive growth, which is learn, experiment, try new things. And that's what allows the play. That's exactly it. So you get this, you get this um, virtuous cycle where people are now realizing, all right, growth will come from play and purpose. Mm. And play and purpose will create growth. Mm. And if we can create that flywheel in our organizations, you get sustainable motivation driving faster levels of growth. Mm-hmm. Those flywheels, though, need to be managed. They need to be created. They don't happen accidentally, and they certain certainly don't happen accidentally at scale. Which is interesting because you just mentioned scale there. My, my the next point I was going to ask you about was you talked how uh, purpose is 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 particularly strong at a, at a local level. Okay. Uh, for, for for individuals, but how perhaps maybe purpose defined at organizational level doesn't have as as much sway as much as much influence. However, there are large organizations out there. You know, we've worked with some that uh, have got are as large as a hundred thousand um, uh, globally. How? And I'm sure you've worked with similar size organizations yourself. So when when they come to you and say, we want to uh, transform our performance culture, we want to become more high performing uh, and because things are not working for us at the moment. How do you square that off, given that they are so distributed, working across lots of different time zones in lots of different, you know, some are, some are office based, some will be home working. How do you, how, how, where on earth do you start with all that when it comes to performers? You know, it's a great question, Roger. The, 
One, it's worth pointing out that what we found is no two organizations are the same. Like, so we we do find in actual practice where one starts tends to be different from company to company. But given all that, given that caveat, I'll I'll share with you an average, kind of what, what our average hypothesis is when we typically go into a very, very large company. The first thing we we recommend is if your goal is to create a high-performing environment, which necessitates a highly motivating environment, like those two things go hand in hand. And once you start to realize that that has to happen quite locally, like there are some global levers, but the problem is the global levers are usually about reducing emotional pressure and economic pressure, not creating plain purpose. The creation of plain purpose typically has to happen quite locally. And by the way, there's a lot of emotional pressure also quite locally. So when you really unpack what's impacting a person's motivation, imagine you have three categories. There is the person's own life, their baggage, what they're bringing to the table, et cetera. There are global factors like the company's mission or or our talent system, like how we performance manage or pay people, like quite global phenomena. Mm-hmm. And there's local phenomena, like how does my team organize its work? How do we drive our work? What's the nature of my role? Um, what we find is typically at least half of a person's motivation is coming from that third category, local phenomena. Mm. And at most half is coming from the other two. But that's that's kind of an extreme. Like usually it's more, much more that's coming from local phenomena. And so when you realize that that is true. And most people realize that just by simply thinking through their own careers, like they'll start to realize that pattern has played out in their own lives. The the place where we start with organizations is we start by saying, look, we have to essentially give everyone a common understanding of the science of performance. That's where we start. Where we generally start is we want to make sure that even if it's 200,000 people, every single person understands this is what drives performance. Mm-hmm. You got to increase direct motives, play purpose potential. You got to decrease the indirect motives, emotional pressure, economic pressure, inertia. Because if everyone really gets the goal, it's the same thing with an OKR. Like if you, as you said, it's your sat nav. Yeah. If everyone understands the cultural goal, that the performance goal is to maximize motivation, to maximize performance, and they know what that means, like they really get it. Yeah. That has to be step one. Like everyone understands what we're trying to head towards from a performance vision in our company. Mm-hmm. Now, generally where we start uh, in the average organizations is actually bottoms up, not tops down. Where we start with teams, their leaders and their leaders, setting up the right structure for how they should do their work, the right rhythms for driving their work forward. Mm-hmm with the, essentially the right habits at that local level mm, yeah, to, to do work well on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis, actually. Um, what we find is actually these daily and weekly rhythms have a profound effect on play and purpose when done well. Mm. And so we usually zero in on play and purpose. Like we want to start with those, but we start with those by, by reshaping the, those local habits. And we help teams build their own feedback loops in those local habits. We help teams self-correct in those local habits because at the end of the day, it'd be very hard to do this at scale if teams can't self-correct. Mm-hmm. And that's usually where we start. Right. Um, from there, we work our way outward. Um, interestingly, the very last thing we recommend an organization doing is adjusting their performance management system. <laughs> Most organizations go there first. Yes, massively. <laughs> but we usually recommend, let's do Stuart last because, yeah. well, one, is super painful. Um, two, your colleagues won't feel comfortable relaxing the control system if they don't trust that their people can drive their own performance. And so what we want to start with is building the muscle where teams can drive their own performance. Once you get there, you realize all of these strings that we're attaching to people, all of these sticks and carrots that we're using, the the whip that we're cracking was not just unnecessary, it was detrimental to their performance. 
Yeah. So yeah, some really, really great points you're making there that again resonate strongly with 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 my experience and I know my wider team's experience with 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 clients. Um particularly the the point you made around going to systems first. Um the number of times that a client has elected to go for a system and just expected that to change everything is uh, is I'm, I've lost count of. Um but uh yeah, some some really interesting points there. I think um I think about it, this way, Roger. Like, I think that a lot of a lot of people they, people want the silver bullet. I don't blame yeah, them for wanting the exactly, silver bullet. Exactly. You know, like I don't blame them. Like I would love silver bullets in every aspect of my life. <laughs> and if a silver bullet existed, I would yeah. absolutely want it. But unfortunately, yeah. one of the things we learned about high-performing organizations, there wasn't a silver bullet. Yeah. Um, it has to, because fundamentally it is about adaptability, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, massively. And interestingly, the, kind of the next point that I had that I was going to move on to kind of it builds on that. And it's it's actually in, in it to do with how an organization structures itself, because I mean, 99% of organizations are still, they may not like to call themselves hierarchies, but are still fairly hierarchical in, in, in nature. Even if they're a matrix, there's still a, a large amount of hierarchy in there. And what we find is that when strategy is, and I hate this term, I hate it because it just implies a very passive flow of um, of goals through the business. But when, when strategy is cascaded through an organization, um, you see it going through, you know, from, from senior level through the functions and so on and so forth. But the thing is, though, strategic objectives, strategic priorities don't always fit nicely and perfectly into a functional area or a functional team. So, what what we find, and again, this is kind of I think within the the, the realm or the theme of adaptability. What we find is that um, to really get traction against um, a a strategic priority, we 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 uh, are seeing more and more clients develop cross functional working teams. Um, you know, you may call them. Some may actually go go all all agile and call them squads if they wish. Um, but for the lifetime of these goals, uh, whilst they're in play, they have people, and it's this. You know, they've been doing this in in, in software development for for years with you know product teams, for instance, that are multidisciplinary. Um, but we're finding that become more of an accepted practice in general, and not just the preserve of you know product teams. Um, and I just wonder if that's evidence of adaptability at like an organizational level, perhaps. Roger, it's a great point that you're making. And there's, there's a bunch of things I'd love to unpack on that because it's one of those things where there's a, there's very much a beware the buzzword problem I find in this space. Mm -hmm. And it's worth really making sure that, that we all understand what we're talking about at a, at a pretty, pretty granular level. So the first thing I'd want to make sure that you're your listeners are thinking about is this distinction between tactical and adaptive performance. Tactical performance is about convergence. You have a best practice, you have project plans, you have tasks, you have processes, and you want your people to follow those processes. You want them to follow their policies. You want them to follow their best practice. That's tactical performance, essentially a machinery of convergence. Mm -hmm. Adaptive performance, adaptive is essentially the exact opposite to divergence. It's you don't want them to follow that process, that policy, that best practice, that procedure, because the scenario that they're in is better achieved by something else. Um, and that's where experimentation, problem solving, uh, creativity, novelty all, all play a role. Now, what organizations first don't realize is one, you want both of these. Like in some scenarios, you, the tactical performance is the ideal thing to do. In some scenarios, adaptive is the ideal thing to do. One, most org an organization, any team, any organization, what I encourage them to fully wrap their heads around is you want both. The second thing I encourage them to wrap their heads around is if you use pressure to create either of them, you will destroy the other. If you force your people to converge tactical performance using emotional economic pressure, you will lose the adaptive performance. Mm. People can't adapt 
under emotional and economic pressure. Put differently, when you're under pressure, it's when you're least likely to try something new. And so if you want the balance of tactical and adaptive, if you want both, your operating model has to motivate through play purpose potential, not emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. So that's the second thing. Now, the third thing is I completely agree with your point around cross-functional working teams as the means to better problem solve. But even there, there's, there's an important baby in a bathwater. So if you think about large organizations and their hierarchies for a moment, the baby in the scenario of that hierarchy is these folks that you have that are more senior, that are more experienced, that have a, a higher vantage point, they bring a very unique set of skills and context to problem solving. That's really important. Like I remember when I worked at that financial institution, I got to know the CEO of it very well. Probably one of the smartest human beings I've ever met in my life. I mean, this dude's a genius. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't have been essentially a legend of Wall Street <laughs> if he wasn't a genius. Yeah. And the, every moment I got where he gave me a piece of wisdom, it was a true gift. Now, that's the baby of a hierarchy, that you have folks that are more experienced and have a broader vantage point and have almost certainly a deeper or broader set of skills, and they can teach and they can coach and they can mentor and they can help you make sure that you're on track or not on track. That's the baby. Mm. The bathwater is when those very same hierarchies create over-convergence. Over through emotional and economic pressure. And so the first thing I recommend is, I don't, I don't actually recommend organizations dismantle their hierarchies because what I do recommend is they de-depower their hierarchies, that they actually reduce their hierarchy's ability to create pressure and increase their hierarchy's ability to coach. Mm. Um, so that's kind of thing number one. Like I don't wanna leave anyone with the impression that that these hierarchies aren't of value. They are actually. Mm -hmm. And it's, I find that organizations who've tried to completely dismantle their hierarchies end up usually in a state of chaos. Mm, yes, agreed. Because you need that structure and you need that experience and you want to leverage that experience. And you want to leverage these folks that have been doing this work for 20, 30 years and have that much history and that much knowledge and that much, that much vantage point. But the opposite of what you said is also true that that most of the problems our teams encounter today are hard. If you think about it, like we've now been in this technology era for 30, 40 years. Actually more, if you think about it, like if you were to talk to the big banks, they would say, Neil, we've been digitizing since the fifties. Sure. Um, and so we've been in this technology era for 70 years. The low hanging fruit, we've, we've, we've plucked it all like simple automation, simple digitization, simple self-service, we've plucked all the low-hanging fruit. Now we're in difficult automation, difficult self-service, technology to create completely different experiences and value propositions. Well, all of that requires cross-functional thinking, cross-functional problem solving. And I completely agree with your point that these teams, the solving a problem cross-functionally will often result in a better solution. Now, what I found in practice though, Roger, which is important, I work with a lot of executives where they say, Neil, we already have cross-functional teams. And then when you investigate, it wasn't true at all. <laughs> um, what they had was something that they thought were cross-functional teams, but those teams were still, those, the people on those teams were still 100% driven by their hierarchies. Yeah. And what they thought was cross-functional problem solving was not. It was still a sequence of handoffs. You know, engineers talk about how we went from waterfall to agile. In most companies, this isn't true. They went from waterfall to many small waterfalls where they still have the handoffs. The problem solving is still in silos. The problem solving is still not cross-functional and they just haven't gotten there yet. Mm. You know, ironically, one of, the, one of the things that we recommend to the organizations that have this phenomenon, the very first intervention we recommend is actually teach every single person in the organization collaborative problem solving. So we drive a course actually on collaborative problem solving. Right. Because if people don't understand what that even means, mm. they don't have a vision of what it should feel like where Roger, who has this set of expertises and Neil, who has a completely different set of expertises, 
can actually come together and solve a problem and do that in a way that's fun. If they don't have a vision of what that should feel like, they don't, they're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> your, your, your point about how they cl- often can claim to have cross-functional teams, but when you lift the lid, it's, it, it, it's pretty much what's been there for a while, but just labeled differently is, is something which I think we've encountered a number of times. But uh, I'm conscious of time and, and I know we're kind of uh, coming into our, our, our last few minutes. I'm, I'm, apologies if this maybe means that you go back and maybe just cover some of the ground that we touched already. But this is a question which we get asked a lot. So I just want to ask it very explicitly. Okay. And it's around reward. Yeah. Now, with OKRs, you know, the absolute purists say that you should not have any connection, any direct link between, um, you know, an, an achievement of a key result and somebody's or, or even a whole team's, you know, bonus or, or pay rise or whatever. And, and in, in many respects, I, I personally agree with that. There is a however for me in this, in that, uh, you know, we are talking about performance and, um, it's not necessarily all about the results in many respects. It's about, you know, as we've discussed the, the, the how, uh, how, how they have kind of approached the problem solving, the, the, the collaboration, um, how they've engaged with the whole process, how, how much they've, they've, they've kind of thrown themselves into it and how much they contributed to it. Um, and, and, and I think, that's that I think that's an important part of kind of evaluating performance. But yeah, it, it, it just just a few minutes that we have left. Can you just kind of talk us through your your thoughts around, you know, how you would recommend and uh, you know at a broad level how performance is 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 is, is evaluated and, and, and rewarded. Um, so in a few minutes, the most controversial question you could have possibly asked. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> you know, Roger, this could have been a five-part series, just yeah. this question in your podcast. Um, but I'll give you a quick answer. One, it is the most controversial piece in the world. Yeah. But what I would say is, look, just think about it this way. If you were a high-performing leader and you were leading your own team, you wouldn't want to reward OKRs or outcomes like that. Because what you'll find is you're going to end up spending most of your time on sandbagging, defensiveness, adjustments. I was talking to one um, chief revenue officer and I asked a simple question. How much, how often do you spend um, adjusting commissions um, because scenario changed? He said, we spend weeks every month. We have a whole team that just does commission adjustments. Oh, God. Um, because, you know, because essentially what they realize is the scenarios are different. I'll, I'll put it differently, Roger. Think about, the dis- think about the distortions that these systems create. A, a very simple example. Imagine you and a colleague of yours were on a sales team. I'm your sales leader. And let's say I know Roger is the experienced sale- seller. Roger's been doing this for 30 years. He's deeply knowledgeable. He's got great connections, great relationships. And this other person is brand new. You're both in a commission system. Now, I, as your leader have strategic choices to make. Like one simple one is who gets the more difficult leads, Roger or this new guy? Mm. Now, the value optimizing thing to do would be to give Roger the difficult leads, the new guy, the easy ones. But the, the, the commission system causes a very simple distortion. It makes me want to give Roger the easy ones mm. and give the other guy the hard ones. Essentially, by putting that kind of pressure against goals, you take away risk management. You take away adaptability. And if your leaders actually learned how to drive performance using their habits, using their weekly rhythms, using experimentation, you would find that you don't need it to actually drive performance. And if anything, it's an anchor holding you back. And so your, what you said earlier around how many experts and you included would say, you know what, if you, you should learn how to not actually put rewards against OKRs. I completely agree. I think that it is actually causing more harm than good from a performance perspective. Mm. And you would much rather put all of that energy, get it out of sandbagging. Like if you spent a week, let's say you spend a week or a month every year 
just managing sandbagging. I would much rather you spend that week to a month teaching your leaders how to lead really, really well. Mm. And then you'd find you just didn't need to have the, you need to have the pressure on the goal in the first place. No, exactly. Exactly. And, it, and, and the evaluation for me uh, should then be around the um, uh, behaviors uh, around um, uh, you know, broad, broad level of, you know, broad nature of the contribution that some, that somebody or a team has made and so on. Absolutely. The, yeah. And we can go deeper into that, but I'll give you one last visual that I think will help your listeners really think about this. Uh, imagine Roger for a moment, you're driving a car down a winding road and imagine on both sides of that road are cliffs. So if you were to drive off the road, it would be a real problem for you. Mm. Now, imagine I said to you, Roger, you can touch that steering wheel once every 20 minutes. <laughs> How fast would you drive the car? Pretty slowly. Pretty slowly. Like that's, that's instinctually what we would do. Now, what you're realizing there is actually an engineering principle. You, you study this in your fourth year in an engineering program as undergrad. That's when I learned this. This principle is that a machine or a team or an organization, its velocity is a function of the frequency and quality of its feedback loops. If you can't adjust course quickly, you will drive slowly. And this is the same that's true with the team. The slower it can adjust course, the slower it will go. Um, now, adjusting course, if you have pressure against your goals, your team will, will be more defensive when you raise issues. Mm. They will hide performance problems sooner rather than later. They'll actually be less likely to adjust course, not more. Mm. All of this is actually going to slow down your team's velocity, not speed it up. And that's the thing that most leaders need to really wrap their heads around. They, they act like the road is a straight shot. Like there's no need to ever adjust course. Oh. And no road is a straight shot. They all are winding. They're all twisting. We all need to have our hands on the steering wheel. We have to be adjusting course constantly. That's the adaptability that most leaders are missing right now. Yeah, I think, Neil, I think you've, you've, you've brought us to the end and concluded with an absolute classic there. Um, around velocity and uh, I, I think that's that's a brilliant point to end on so I think we will call things to a close there and just to say a huge thank you actually for the for the past hour or so that you've given given us um, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking and I'm, and I'm sure our listeners will have as well and uh, wish you all the best for for, the, for, for whatever 22 has in store for you well, thank you so much, Roger. And, and to all your listeners out there, keep learning, keep growing, keep mastering these concepts. Read Prime to Perform. It'll help you. Yeah. And reach out if you guys have any questions. I'm happy to keep keep um, chatting with you, Roger. Okay. Well, we'll we'll circulate your details when we publish the, uh, the podcast. And uh, yeah, if people want to reach out to you directly, I'm sure they can do. All awesome. right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Take care.